This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Hi, Puka. Uh, what are we talking about tonight, Puka? I believe we are doing our deep dive into the monstrosity that is the first edition player's guide for Changeling. Not monstrosity, it's just, you know, it's it's a chonker. Yeah, it's a chonker, but I mean, it's... How many pages is this? This is... Uh... 100 and... It's almost 200. 192, yeah. I think. That's not a chonker. I think it says, like, on the wiki or something, 96. And I remember seeing mm-hmm. that and saying, that's not correct. Mm-hmm. Speaking of strange things here, I don't know about your printing. My printing is from a later date, 1997, and has an ad for Hunter the Reckoning. So. Yeah, I have both of these qualities to mine as well. Huh. Now, is this the only one? And there was some sort of time travel shenanigans? Well, as we've said many times before with Changeling books, who can say? Yes. In fact, all Changeling books were actually written in 2003, and the myths have covered up their actual publication dates. Lies. Uh, Yeah, trust the puka on that one. Okay, so. Always trust the puka. It does also have, I'll point out in the the copyright box, it says, you know, where it has everything that's copyright White Wolf Publishing Incorporated. They also include Aeon and Werewolf the Wild West, so I think that also helps localize it in time a bit but yeah and it starts off like before the table of contents or anything there's that little oops section where uh you can you can email uh puka ian at aol.com sure that address is still up or send a self-addressed stamped envelope to the white wolf offices in clarkston georgia get right on that we do have a cavalcade of writers credited here, including Phil Brucato, Jackie Casada, Richard Dansky, Jennifer Hartshorn, Robert Hatch, Stefan or Stephen Herman, Chris Howard, Ian Lemke, Angel McCoy, Neil Mick, and Nikki Rea, with additional material by Alan Tower. I think most of those people have popped up in other books we've looked at as well. Mm-hmm. There's also a word from White Wolf Game Studios and giving a fond farewell to Jennifer Hartshorn. Then we get into the book. One thing that I want to say, just as a general note, as we launch into this, is I think this book has my favorite art for the chapter openings. They all kind of tell a little story, and they're all sort of exquisitely, in my mind, drawn. And I really like them. So Mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure why every single red cap needs to have like rivets and nails in their face and usually doesn't have a nose but that's a choice yeah i think that we're still figuring out what the kits look like things sort of get more cemented down as second edition goes on i think but this is yeah you know rivets in the face though i I don't think that should ever entirely go away from the red caps i think some of them should still have that rivets or paper clips or not paper clips um staples or whatnot yeah, or fishhook earrings or whatever. It's mm-hmm. fine. It's just, it seems like every single one of them has that has that mm-hmm. fashion choice. Yep. It's got a lot of orc look to it, too. Yeah. Anyway, we start with some fiction. Yeah, speaking Jim of Red Caps. Yeah, the shy Red Cap. What did you think of this story? 
At first, I was a little bit worried because you have this Sealy Redcap who's a bit of a nice guy in capital letters. Mm-hmm. But I thought it, I actually kind of liked it. I found it kind of sweet. sweet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I like the going to like a member of every of the core book, Kithane, asking for dating advice. That was, I like that. <laughs> Getting very different answers. Yeah. I have questions now about chimerical interactions with cows and other an- other mm-hmm. animals. Like, do you need to be enchanted to mess with a cow? Or like, does the cow need to be enchanted? Or can you just mess with the cow? I don't know. It's probably she would have been changed by later editions anyway, but I'm now asking for my own games if you ever do chimerical cow tipping or chimera doing cow tipping, not tipping chimerical cows. What? Uh... Either way, either way. Yeah. There's, there's going to be some questions there. Maybe we'll yeah. do a storyteller's vault supplement on it. Oh, maybe so. <laughs> we have the story about the, the red cap in love. And I suppose it's also good in, in that showcasing how every kith would give advice on love. That's like intro to the player's guide. We're going to tell you in-depth things about various kiths, which I like. Mm-hmm. Yep. The knocker one, for instance, like they all could be taken differently. They're, they're members of the kith. They're not like right. it's, not every knocker would be the same opinion, yeah. for instance, but one should not universalize. Yeah. And then we get to the introduction. And again, mm-hmm. favorite art, we have this Marlena Dietrich knocker. And just one of my favorite images in the entire game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this introduction's even more explicit than most White Wolf books, that everything here is optional. Use whatever you want at your table kind of thing. Which, frankly, a lot of them should say more succinctly mm-hmm. and outright. Yeah. This one felt a little bit like, uh, we don't really like this book. But I mean, I think I think <laughs> it's good. But it's pretty, it's, I don't know. I was pleased to see, so they, I mean, the introduction essentially just consists of a list of inspirations from, yep. you know, movies and books and music. And I'm glad that most of the ones that, well, several of the ones we covered in our episode about 10 mm-hmm. inspirational books for Changeling, which ended up being 13 inspirational books for Changeling, a lot of them are actually listed here. So Yes. And a lot of the ones we didn't do hadn't been written yet. So that is fair. The music I found... I don't disagree with any of the music choices, but I think it was a little bit too limited in genre. It is very sort of Irish trad slash new age slash folk cross section. That is true. Yeah. With some rock. Mixed like, in there. I think you could add like industrial or something from that period or yeah, some of the stuff that shows up in other White Wolf books would have still worked in Changeling, but maybe they didn't want to do like deep cuts or anything. I don't know, but yeah, but I mean, come on. I think you have to have, Cure somewhere in a changeling game. The cure, perhaps. Yeah, dead can dance is in there. I mean, mm-hmm. get some of that gothiness. But yeah, I remember reading this when I first got the book, and I was just thinking, "Oh, it's my CD collection. Great." Mm-hmm. So that worked out, and that's the introduction. That that might be like the briefest book introduction in the entire line. Yeah, it's still kind of dense though. Like it's yeah for an introduction, it has a lot of content with those recommendations. Well, this book overall, I would say, is very densely written. They do pack a lot of material into these 200 pages. It sounds like a lot to work with, and it is, but they mm-hmm. certainly get their page count. I oh, also want to say, though, on this book, it is my Changeling book that is faring the least well in terms of integrity. I have a lot of loose pages here. I don't know oh, no. Yeah, I was very careful reading it. Mine is Mine is a bit yellowed with age, but it's holding up physically all right i think mm-hmm. so then we have chapter one the kithane traits and we yep. start with the introduction of merits and flaws into changeling which had not yep. previously existed 
It says these are taken from Merits of Flaws are taken from Vampire and Werewolf. And Mage. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> say it's taken from Mage. Yes, but, but we do one have... of them obviously was. Yes. Yes, we do have the sphere natural merit for changelings. So uh... Yes. But then the text of it is all about talking about arts. So you're like Still though. Yeah. Yeah, some of them clearly were not not edited closely. Yeah. This is a section that's like nice historically, but like I don't really see anything in here where I'd go, I need this in my C twenty game because like the the merits of laws, I mean specifically. They're very similar to what you get in second edition and then C twenty, I found. Yeah. Well, in the second edition, I think they pretty much just copied and pasted with maybe... So, all right, here's here's something that I actually I wanted to look into and ask you about because it was bugging me. With birthrights mm-hmm. and frailties for Keths, the ones specifically that give you extra attribute dots, at your table, yep. do you run those as only being chimerical or across the board all the time active? I go across the board all time active. As do I. In second edition, I didn't get that impression that it was supposed to. I think it's gone back and forth because... So in here, because Player's Guide is still first edition, we have the Seeming's Blessing Merit, which lets you carry over those those dots or those birthrights into mm-hmm. when you invoke the weird or whatever. That's, that's when you normally get them. But then the yeah. Seeming's Blessing lets you have them all the time. In second edition, there's specifically a note at the start of the Kith section that says these are not active all the time. It's only chimerically unless you invoke the weird. Yep. And it seems like that's been dropped out in C20 along with the Seeming's Blessing Merit. Yep. So, yeah. That's my preference, yeah. So I think, well, j- just like in a shout out to Mage the podcast when they say there's more than three editions. Yeah. I believe exactly. they've also talked about this on Walking Away from Arcadia with Changeling. When I say an edition, I usually think of like the core book, but really you can't extend that to the supplements because... Mm-hmm changes happen over time and it's not like they were all written it's not like all of first edition was written in one go and then all of second edition and then all of c20 it's yeah i mean c20 maybe there's not so many changes but second edition for instance is a huge shift but even first edition the issue for me is when a new edition comes out and they kind of try and compress a whole bunch of material from the previous edition it runs into that problem where some of the stuff transfers very easily and then Mm -hmm. other stuff doesn't but it all gets mashed together and sometimes yeah. you end up with contradictory material. My personal preference is for certainly if it's adding like an attribute dot or something, mm-hmm. my preference is to just have it always be active as long oh, as... Oh, yeah. No, me too. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have a favorite merit and or flaw? Uh, no. I mean, besides sphere natural, I think all things should be <laughs> natural. And sphere. I, I, I didn't actually, I didn't like the ties merits. Those all just felt like they should be backgrounds or something like allies or the like. And they also, they got dumped in revised editions, which Changeling never got. So I believe in C20, they're kind of dumped as well. I always liked Mm -hmm. the Fairy Eternity Merit. I thought it was kind of an interesting, I mean, for a two-point merit, it offers a lot of story possibilities that are kind of intriguing. Yeah. I I like, okay, my favorite, okay, if we're talking about flaw in general, yeah, I wasn't, because I was kind of like, oh, I've already seen these in the other games so many times, but I'm like, Bard's Tongue. Yeah. It's my favorite flaw. And changeling eyes. It's like changeling the, eyes is always like, oh, I need one more point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the it's the easiest extra freebie you'll ever get. Yep. But yeah, we have a bunch of them. They're the standard ones. There really aren't that many, I would say, which are changeling specific that you know no other splat could mm-hmm. could have. Slipped seeming, maybe cleared mists, things like that. But 
or she's cursed. Greedy glamour. Psychic vampire makes for an interesting story hook as well. Mm-hmm. That's one that like I've I don't know if I've ever seen any player take that. I just remember. Well, I know it's in Mage, but then also there's the Sorcerer Path, which is Psychic Vampirism, and that can mm-hmm. be really, that can make for a very interesting character. Probably an NPC, usually. Yeah, Child is always the fun one when you're dealing with the first and second edition of you're playing a Childling. Right. It's like, are you, are you, should you just take that? Like, what? Probably. Mm-hmm. And then we get into new abilities. Oh, the secondaries. I don't like <laughs> most of these. This is... I feel the same way in the other games. Mage is a big one where it's just like, I think there might be something in here. At least one of these I thought should be in the game. And oh, one of them is in the game, probably. Like the animal can kind of make sense, yeah. maybe. But like well, everything else just seems like it should be a thing you do with another ability. Yeah. And I do like how the 20th anniversary lines have handled that with the the hobby talent, the professional skill, and the mm-hmm. expert knowledge, I think, are the terms. So that you can really just fill in whatever you need to. Yeah, because I don't know how much falconry really needs to be in your game. Well, I'm, I'm dismayed not to see spitting in here, which we got in the one NPC for whatever it was, mm. Freeholds and Hidden Glens. Yep. I do like, I mean, these are all standard ones you would find in any other, the early edition player's guides. Mm-hmm. But I do like the note in the knowledge section, we have a brief aside for sign language, which is not a separate ability. It says it can be bought as a level in linguistics because linguistics was still mm-hmm. a skill at that point. But it points out that not all sign languages are the same and that each one must be bought separately. I'm very glad to see that because I believe there's this perception often that like ASL or whatever sign language someone is familiar with is just the sign language that everybody uses. It's like, well, oh, no, yeah, actually. No. So yeah. it's good that that's in there. The same actually happens with Braille too. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Braille, depending on what country you live in, too. Yeah. Even with an English. But aside from that, secondary abilities there. I do wish they had kept, I think it was in Vampire 2nd Edition, there was a note that secondary abilities essentially cost half. So if you spent one ability dot, you would get two dots of your secondary ability. Mm-hmm. And I suppose they dropped that for balance reasons, but I wish there was something similar to make it clearer. Hey, you can yeah. like set this up to make it worth taking these. Well, lore, for instance, does seem to have stuck around. I don't know if it stuck around in Changeling, but that's one that I've seen in multiple games that's actually used. But... I think it, it got bumped up to primary ability. Yeah. But like astrology, uh, computer hacking separate from computer, literature. Pickpocket. Leatherworking. <laughs> well, at least I could see some a character who's like needing to roll pickpocket in a game. How about gunsmithing? Oh, and also splitting up science into multiple knowledges. Game playing, if you want to get really meta. Yeah. Brewing. There are options. Taxidermy. That <laughs> maybe should not be that common in your game. Anyway. But next we get on to legacies. This is a thing I do like, and I do tend to bring out. I like bringing these out partly because it doesn't, even though other parts of the book kind of disagree, it doesn't present Celia is always good and Unsealy is always mm-hmm. bad. Like some of the unseely things, like I could have a friend who has that. That's fine. And some of the seely ones, you're like that person's a monster. So it's it's yep. good. <laughs> Arcadian, for example, you may view humans yeah. as inferior. Hmm. Seely legacy, you say. We do also have what appears to be a noseless red cap with rivet jewelry on the uh, in the art on this page. There's a nose. It's just a very turned up small nose. Yes. Mm, semi half a nose. Yep. But also, it still has the she she the pointy ears. Of course. Yeah, I mean, these legacies, they really, 
they do expand the the range that players mm-hmm. can choose from. I feel like back in the days of vampire, maybe or even werewolf, you kind of got more nature and demeanor archetypes in you know random clan books or tribe books or other places, so that if you really did put the full list together, you had a lot of options. Mm-hmm. And I don't know for changeling at least. I don't know that they ever did any beyond. The core book in the player's guide. Yeah, I think the player's guides might have been reprinted in the LARP book. That's about it. Mm. And then we get the companion background, which is very underdeveloped. I just totally forgot it wasn't in the core book. Yeah. And then they developed them both more extensively in second edition, which was a wise decision. Mm-hmm. Though I still find in C20 at least the regular Chimera, not the Chimera companion. I've had trouble with that. Yeah. For Chimerical items that aren't treasures, like don't just inflict an art but anyway yeah i mean i suppose the advantage is like the the one that i know i've i've pointed to in the past is you can be wearing armor whenever you want but not actually need to have it visible or usable until you call on the weird mm-hmm. but even that is kind of like wouldn't you rather just take resources and just get armor that functions well, all the time <laughs> well no but they mean also then like okay fine you get chimerical sword you get chimerical armor yeah. Cool. Okay, but like, if I'm taking a chimera, I want it to be cool and do something magical, not just yeah. its armor. <laughs> yeah, there should probably be a better system for that. Note for the mm-hmm. future. Yes. Another storyteller book. So. Yes. Yeah. Just have to make a list of these. Yes. Take a drink. <laughs> recommend a start. Now we have chapter two, the Kith Society. I did like this chapter. I think it's probably yeah. overall the most useful one because before there were the kith books this is what you had for a deeper information uh, on each kith yeah when it again when it came out very useful nowadays not so much well because c20 doesn't really have deep dives into the kiths except for yeah. the boggins i would say that this is still as useful as mm-hmm. going out and getting all the kith books you know yeah and i do like the knockers for instance better than the knocker kith book right yeah yeah like the takes on the takes on each kith in here are more grounded in just the core book material which i like mm-hmm. with a couple exceptions there are a couple yes. items in here that i'm i raise an eyebrow at which we can talk about yeah well okay let's go through them okay so we have boggins yeah. first um i still have not finished the c20 kith book boggins to compare it against but i liked this one what would you think about reading each epigraph because i feel like that sums up Okay, yeah, sure. Do do you want me to start? Yeah. A child is like a piece of uncarved wood. Each has a story to tell and limitless magic within. It's up to the carver to set that magic free. Myra Whittlestick, Boggin Busybody. And that just tells you all you need to know, really. Yeah. Each each of these kith write-ups is a little bit different in structure, but generally they give you background on kind of the dreams that gave form to the kith, their attitude towards each other towards their peers towards mortals etc their general appearance beliefs which i think is probably the most useful it gives these sort of codes of ethics that go beyond the s cheat and the court stuff their organization information about their birthrights and frailty more specifics about the courts and then of course their stereotypical outlooks on the other kids and i do mm-hmm. like how this is divided into celia versus unsealy so you get the Seelie Boggin perspective on the satyrs and the Unseelie Boggin perspective. So that's mm-hmm. a nice a nice touch. It's a good solid four pages. Yes. A lot of these, I mean, there's some unevenness. So I think it's the satyrs, the trolls, 
and the red caps have like a lot more than the others. Mm. I, I kind of get the feeling that because this book was written by committee, different people were probably writing different kits. Some of them start with in character or actually have a lot in, in character voice and others have none mm -hmm. at all. So yeah. I, and I don't entirely know how much cross checking there was between, between the writers. Yeah. But anyway. did, did we want to go, did you want to go through each kit or? Yeah. Well, just briefly. I mean, so the, the yeah. issue, here's the thing. Well, I'll give the issue epigraph. It says, the wind at my back, a tail upon my lips, and a hearty stack of bills in my pocket. Now that's the good life. From Carlon Walksvar, issue storyteller, who I believe we last saw in The Autumn People. So there you yeah. go. The thing with the issue that, I mean, we've talked before about the sort of wincy stuff that's done with, oh, this is, this is the non-white people kith, and lumping a lot of disparate traditions, beliefs, and mythoi yeah. into a single kith. The thing that mm -hmm. really stood out to me, and I think my head spun around once or twice, they kind of go into the origin of the name Ishu, and they say, oh, well, mm -hmm. thousands of years ago, they were called Eithu, which is later the name we get for Ishu Thalane, but then mm -hmm. it was modified into Ishu when the Arabs began arriving in Africa during the Middle Ages, which would have been along the Eastern coast in like the yeah. 10th century or whatever. And that is so completely divorced in every way from where the actual name comes from that I feel like it's almost worse. And mm -hmm. I say this as, as a white person who doesn't really have a personal stake in it, but I just look at that description and I'm like, how did you manage to make this worse? You know? Yeah. Well, I think the, the worst part in this bit is the sentence, despite their tribal origins, the issue of cultured, polished manners. That also does not help. Yeah. No. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So this this chapter it just says the issue can be maybe skip this one. Yeah, it's yeah. Although it does say the biggest issue three holes in Barcelona. You could yeah. It's not like every line was terrible in that, but right. There are little moments that are that are cool. Like yeah. they talk about how two issue greet for the first time, how they abhor killing animals for sport, and again the deeper information about birthrights and frailties. You know that's useful, mm -hmm. but take a deep breath and have a bottle of something strong next to you when you go through this. Yep. So next is knockers, which I find to be the opposite way. Uh, anyway, mm. it's the greetings. You smarmy overpaid excuse for a piece of camel vomit. Well, as long as you're here stinking up the place, might as well show you the new piece I'm working on, but don't touch it. I don't want you to it up. Okay. The match drops and the lights against the sandpaper, which burns the fuse and lights a candle, which burns through the rope. Huh? Oh, it's a toaster. Anyway, the candle burns through the rope. Fetal silver quack, knocker inventor. What is with these names? <laughs> I don't know. Is this is this what they what they call each other? These must be PC. I think these might be PCs. I suppose, yeah. Anyway. Uh, I liked this section, like this entry on knockers, a lot better than Kitbook knockers, actually. It's uh, interesting. Like it's talking about, you know, they have the same talking about the Goblin Town in New York. So like they often don't live together, but when they do, you get amazing things happening. Mm -hmm. I did like the um, note that they apparently invented trademarks in the year 800. Yeah. Which I think actually predate the year 800, but. They might. I guess you had, you had seals and stuff, but yeah. Yeah. I like the outlook section where if you took, a, it says like, you know, there's one from, for each kith, for one from sealing knockers, one from unsealing knockers. I think if you took away the who it was from and you randomly sorted it like i would not be able to tell which one's from the sealy knockers which one's from the unsealy knockers 
And you probably couldn't tell which kith was which because they're all, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, a few could probably figure out which kith they're talking about. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I like it. I like Knockers as, as breaking the whole seely unseely divide and just cranky. Yes. Uh, and then we get the puka. So I think it's fitting that you got the Knockers and I got the puka. And the epigraph we have is, my, what a horrible present. This is certainly something I will never use from Rasputin, the Puka Street Poet. This is actually, I believe, a direct quote from the immortalized novel. So, mm. yeah, the, the Puka section is maybe, ironically, pretty straightforward. And they give a lot of depth to the kith, I believe, because it's very easy to look at the Puka and think, oh, you know, silly cat girls and whatever. But it gives a lot, you know. Yeah, this one's a silly cheetah girl. Yes. With leggings. But it gives a lot of little tidbits that flesh out the kith better, I think. Mm-hmm. We get information about the coup de Mardi Gras, where they converge on New Orleans for a big old gathering. And I wish there were more. One thing that I do like about Kith Book Puka more than this is that the lies section is just a single paragraph that's like, oh, they don't consider it lying. They have a communication problem, or rather, others have a listening problem. Whereas Kith Book Puka has something like, four pages on all the possible different ways that puka don't tell the truth yeah so like those actually explain how to play a puka because there's some people who naturally go to puka and then they know how to play a puka and then there's the rest of us who are like um how do i do this so <laughs> something like the kiss books helpful on the red caps yeah red caps so there's two quotes for them the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear by hp lovecraft supernatural horror and literature and give me the finger, will you? Fine, I'll just take it. And your other nine for good measure. Jenny Greenteeth, Moragai Terrorist. That might be the most palatable Lovecraft quote in existence. That's a whole other can of worms. We don't yeah. need to get into for change. Like we, we do not. Of our own. <laughs> uh, I do like, so we have, all of these kits have illustrations by Adam Rex, who's sort of watercolory. I think they're watercolors. Mm-hmm. I do quite like. I especially like how the red cap we have here, who's like rings right in the forehead again, and a nose appears to be missing. They've got these spiked brass knuckles, but they're also wearing fancy socks and heels, which I deeply appreciate. Yeah. So it's not the one from the, likely the one from the uh, story at the beginning. Right. The brass knuckles had me confused. And again, this section is quite long. Yeah. But it's all in character. Yeah, for the most part. And we only get unseely perspectives on the other kiths, which kind of undercuts the story at the beginning. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we had this whole thing about, yes, there are seely red caps. And then it's, oh, we don't even bother telling you what they think about the other kiths. Mm-hmm. I do like the concept of the Moragai being in here, though, because they're kind of like proto river hags. Mm-hmm. A subversive terrorist sisterhood of cannibal hags like Jenny Greenteeth and Gentle Annie and Black Annis. Yeah. Red caps, especially our groups, I like not necessarily for PCs, but like of all the kiths, I guess them and she are the ones I'm most likely to have a group of them be a regular thing. That mm. makes sense. It's a corby of red caps. Yeah, and you can have a nobility of she. I don't know, but oh, collective nouns. Like you for you all still the get boggins working together and satyrs and stuff, but red caps. I don't know. I always like having at least a lot. Well, because no one else wants to work with them. So <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's something for the show notes, collective nouns for each kith. Mm-hmm. And then we get a bunch of satyrs, and their quote is, 
What are you laughing at, Prince Charming? You want satyrs? Well, I got your satyrs right here. Ha ha ha. Philippe Lenoir, anonymous satyr. It's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? To have yeah. a name and then anonymous. Yeah, that, that should be the puka section should have done that. Yeah. Um, Again, we get five full pages here. Of satyrs are half nymphs? Sure. It's a, that's where the nymphs went. They turned into satyrs by this book. It doesn't really make sense, but... Well, maybe as you know, as we've pointed out before, nymphs are like the kith that we never actually got before they turned into mm-hmm. kind of an anime, but then also, I guess, kind of satyrs. And I think they'd effectively disappeared by the time the player's guide came out. Mm-hmm. But a lot of history. I mean, probably more than any of the other sections here. Yep. It's like an origin story for the satyrs. She yeah. didn't really get for the other kith as much. I guess she did for red caps. And I do like, we get a description of the Caliphetos, which is the morning song and the sort of, before one of the elder satyrs dies, they sort of give him one last party so that he mm-hmm. parties to death, dies smiling rather than be undone. Macabre, but fitting for the kith. And then the she? Yeah, this one was, I mean, we already got a book on this, didn't we? <laughs> well, we did, but what do you want to do, do the epigraph? And then... Yeah, I'll do the epigraph. We are the dreams of paupers and presidents, of queens and chieftains the world over. To dispute our right to rule is to dismiss the wisdom of all the people, of all the nations in the histories of the world, attributed Duke Dre, House Gwydion. That's what I'd expect from Dre. It's kind of a jerk. But then there's like a more humble countess who does Annie or Anne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Countess Anne. She's, uh, is she in the toy box? I forget. So the difference between this section and the Nobles, the Shining Host book, I think, is we get all of the stuff that the Kith books give us that Nobles doesn't. So like mm-hmm. Nobles doesn't really go into the on beauty birthright or the noble bearing birthright or the banality's curse frailty. And they don't really talk about the overall attitude or I mean, like they give you in-depth information, but it's not the sort of bird's eye view, mm-hmm. which I think is is still helpful. And we get stuff about romance without going into the whole kerfuffle that is romantic legacies. So, you know. Yep. And then we get the slua. Let me tell you a story. Don't ask me where I heard it, as the answer would only disturb you. Don't tell others where you heard it. They would be upset. Just listen close, little childling, and know that every word is true, especially the ones that scare you. Agnes McDew, Slua of Providence, Rhode Island. Home of H.P. Lovecraft, no less. Mm-hmm. The Slua have this image that's like, shirtless emaciated mad poet mm. and i i don't know i kind of like that as a as a slew of concept yeah really hard to scream though yeah just kind of be like ah. yeah we do have the first uh note about slew of being able to see ghosts yes that was interesting it's like updating their birthright but it also gives us the first note about the slew originally being russian for some reason mm. so... yeah I, I don't know where that why that what yeah. I know it's in the kiss book as well but... yeah it it was a choice mm-hmm. but that's what started out being blobs I do like that aspect mm-hmm. with the formless shadows okay I should I read the entire troll one well I don't think it's necessary <laughs> I'll read the first one perhaps strong arms and sharp blades will not hold back the coming winter but all honorable fay must try sir Athelred mendicant knight and then there's a whole story several paragraphs yep i suspect because kith book trolls came immediately after this they had a lot of material sitting around because again this is one of the longest of Mm -hmm. the kith sections and so maybe that was something that like got cut from kith book trolls so they just stuck it in here yep 
perhaps. But yeah, again, a lot of history. And actually, I guess we don't get birthright information here. Mm -hmm. Well, they're strong and they don't break oaths. That's all you need to know. Yep, they get the Code of Dagda. Similar to medieval codes of chivalry or the samurai code of Bushido. Sure. And that's the kits. I mean, mm -hmm. that chapter, because that's a solid 40 pages on the nine core kits. And I do think that that is, on the whole, a useful section with a couple missteps. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, I wouldn't say anything in that chapter was useless. Yes. You could say yeah. it was a bad idea some parts, but none of it was useless. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And then we get to chapter three. Yes. Chapter three, the Nunehi. All right. <laughs> How shall we preface this? Um, if you haven't listened to our other talk about the Nunehi, we are two white guys. We have opinions. We are working on creating an episode to go more in depth from people who are more knowledgeable about the cultures, at least some of the cultures the Nunehi are drawn from. But in the meantime, we still have our opinions. We're probably going to put out there i'd like to submit that the term guys is used very loosely in my case at least sorry two two white people <laughs> two white folks yeah when we talked about rage across appalachia where they're first introduced i think i had said and i'll i'll maintain this you can see where the good intentions were and you can see mm -hmm. that effort was made how much of that effort falling flat or not going far enough can be attributed to it was the 90s and these were freelance writers under a deadline doing research to the best of their ability and how much of it is just white people wrote this you know i don't know well, that... i think it's if you put in white people wrote this who were under the deadline and all that stuff in the 90s right together kind of well i think that there's there's some because i do believe that it is possible especially now for people of mm -hmm. any background to find adequate information to at least get an idea that's more grounded than some of the stuff we get in these books. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't think that one's own ethnic background necessitates poor research is what I mean. Yes. Because some of the poor research in this chapter isn't even about indigenous peoples. Right, it's exactly. Like basic <laughs> geography screw-ups. Right. And there are other notes that, that I feel like, oh, okay, they may have known someone or talked to someone who gave them this perspective yeah. from an indigenous point of view, and they incorporated that. It's like, great, that's, that's wonderful. But I don't know that we'll mm -hmm. ever, because there's so many little bits of information all woven together, I don't know that it's possible to really separate all of the threads. Mm-hmm. Would be an interesting challenge for someone to take up for some future book. But well, I do, I, neither of us could definitely do it. Yeah, I'm until then, not. we're left with this chapter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we get we get a lot about the nature of the Nunahi. One thing we get here, which is interesting, is there's more in depth on the Nunahi changeling way than we mm. ever get on the Kithane Changeling way, like how it originated yeah. and whatnot. And and I'm unclear if it, like, was the Kithane Changeling way going the same way originally? I don't know. It's always been a little unclear, and there have been discussions about what it exactly looked like. You get conflicting information from, I would say, different editions, and then also when you bring in things like Dark Ages Fey, etc. Mm -hmm. I actually really like the way it's set up here, where the Nunahi Changeling way was that they made arrangements with the people from their individual groups who agreed to act as hosts and they would sort of share the body and lie dormant within the host until that person became a father or a mother of a child at which mm -hmm. point they would pass into that infant it's a little weird when you sort of think about the 
I guess, metaphysics and biology of it, but it's a much less intrusive thing than, for example, what the Arcadian Shi do or what the early Kithin mm-hmm. are implied to do. So, yeah, although it's also doesn't seem to still be maintained because we get Nunahi who have children. Right. And and presumably there are Nunahi that are born outside of these bloodlines. In fact, we do mm-hmm. get a note that there are non-indigenous Nunahi, which is a whole yeah. thing that I don't want to dive into. <laughs> so. And it also doesn't have enough information to do anything with it. Right. It's, it's just a, a historical note. Written. Yeah. There's also the note that they can be sources of glamour for Kithane. Mm-hmm. Which was in the previous. Yeah. Right about them. Oh yeah. This is even they're even more tied to like the human cultures, the associated human cultures. Mm-hmm. I really wish they could just deal with glamour the way like they could muse people and stuff. Well they do. That again, that's something which was in Rage Across Appalachia, but I think gets overlooked so often. They absolutely can do reverie at mm-hmm. the very least, although it does say they get a plus two difficulty when you know using anyone who's not doing well. Does it say story. that in here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a... I missed that. Oh, okay. Never mind. It's later on when they talk about the gathering medicine from nature. But yeah, what I'm curious about is can they ravage? Because that is left yeah. unanswered. So we'll just assume that because it doesn't because it didn't exist yet that they can all uh do rhapsody, right? That makes sense. Well, sure. It's unclear to me whether they've always been able to step sideways into the umbra or whether that only happened after they were cut off from the dreaming because we get notes that they were intermediaries between their people and spirits for a very long time. So it would make Mm -hmm. sense for them to be able to enter the Umbra for as long as they've existed. Yeah. Well, maybe they could, because I think, yeah, the Rage Cost Appalachia had them develop that after their shattering. But like, if you also have, there's a new art for them here. If they had that art, but not the step sideways, they could still be intermediate, so intermediaries. But then wouldn't it make sense for like all of them to have that art? To just have it be an inherent <laughs> And the art we'll get yeah. to the art soon, but frankly, it's a very clunky art. So Oh yeah. <laughs> anyway. Then we get the history section, which mm-hmm. I just did not really wanna I was I was glad when it ended because it, is it better or worse that the Shi are just European colonizers in this one? Well, I'm glad they, they call them what they are. Yeah. But they have the whole, oh, they came over, you know, the whole pre-Columbian mm-hmm. she exchange thing is just something that I want to throw my hands up every time I see it. Mm-hmm. What if they had, the, what if we just had the other way? Dunahe visited Europe and stuff. They could. Anyway. Yeah. But there's just very little detail about everything. So, I mean, it shakes out to about one page of history. Yeah, I think it's just trying to explain the Accordance War. And why they're not Kithane. Yes, but also explain why... The she were able to take over freeholds and create new freeholds and, or bring up old freeholds or something. I don't think it's the best way of doing that by any stretch. No. And it really overlooks, I mean, there are these sort of notes like in the last few decades, there's been a resurgence of Native American pride and renewal of interest in the old ways. Yeah. And that's kind of the only information you get for like the last 100 years of history. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh- yeah, I want I want to focus on that instead of being able to walk into a shrub to go to the umbra. Right, like, or, or or getting information about some ancient pact between a she who, for some reason, was in Appalachia in the 13th century. Yep. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Yep. Moving on. Then we get a geography section that completely ignores anywhere I've lived. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is confused. As I was saying about the geography thing, it talks about the Confederacy of the Iroquois which I double-checked did include what's parts of what's now Southern Ontario, but this book claims otherwise. I don't, I don't know that it, it specifically claims otherwise, but it certainly elides that piece of information. <laughs> yeah, but it's just kind of left out in like the later things. It's just like, well, I want to, if I wanted to use this book for like where, I don't know, the two places I played Changeling and tends to set games in my own. I think that it's an issue of whether or not because as much as they say as much as it's explicitly spelled out concordia includes canada and mexico at the very least canada mm -hmm. and mexico are never given any detail yeah well it, it's also if you if you look though at the, the you know that big map that's like in the different core books yeah right it actually implies that like the chunk of canada i'm talking about are actually in the united states anyway so but it's just a little bit like because they do talk about northern Canada. they actually do talk about canada and other places just nothing to do with ontario and quebec well i mean they talk about northern canada in relation to alaska mostly yeah. <laughs> so. well no they also talk about like um west coast and the prairies too but. that's well they can extend from washington state up to alaska yeah yeah i will say i think that this is the section which I, I can't vouch for the accuracy of all the research, but it's yeah. clear that they tried here because they, they do. Obviously, give... did re lots of research. Yeah, right. whether or not it was accurate, but like that, I think you can forgive a little bit in the nineties, mid nineties. Yeah. It was harder to get a hold of stuff. They give the names of lots of different groups, and yep. they attempted, it seems, to do research into the languages. The thing that I found strange was that it seemed kind of anachronistic. So some, you know, we got notes like, I think there's a, a bit about the Mohawk taking on the modern role of steelworkers high atop the skyscrapers of Manhattan. And I kind of think, yeah. I, I guess that could, that could maybe still be kind of a thing. But then uh, the Zuni live in a single defensible village on top of an inaccessible mesa since the time of Coronado. And I think, is, is that still the case? I mean, yeah, I think, I think the research they did was history books. That's yeah. the problem. Some of them from like 1990 and some from 1890, probably. Yep. So we have information about the three camps as opposed to the mm -hmm. two courts, which, you know, fine, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And then the seemings, the sort of designation of wilders as braves, I am uncertain about because mm -hmm. it sounds like the leveraging of a stereotype, but. Or at the very least. Well, broadly applying one culture. Yeah. Maybe. Or just a stereotype of one culture. Yeah. And then we have some legacies, which mm. there are a couple in here which strike me as maybe not very forward thinking. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't imagine that any person would want to play a character with the legacy scalp taker. No. So, yeah. Nor would I want to. You could have, they could have renamed things here. At the Absolutely. Very least. Yeah, and then we get to the the actual kiss of the Nunihi. I, I want to say there's one thing might make more sense from a okay, actually like applying to real world culture things, but which I think hurts the game is that these Nunihi are supposed to be all very regional. Yeah. So like, if you want to run a game, you pretty much you get like maybe two or three kiths you could play. Yeah. And in some places, just one, and that. That's a problem, I think, for like just from role playing, not from representation necessarily. I might be, especially though it's just playable. It doesn't work as well. 
I suppose if the onus is on the storyteller to say, here's where the game is set, here's the kits that I'm allowing, that would be something mm-hmm. for them to take into account. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like yeah. the, the Kithane are all over Europe, right? Like, right. if you play set a game in Greece, you can still have trolls. Or, or something troll-like, at least. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is that even though we do have the note that they can get glamour from, in particular, indigenous art forms and creation, it's unclear whether it has to be from a group that they're part of or at least connected yeah. to. Like, yeah. could a Nunahi from Maine get glamour from a cultural activity taking place in California? Yeah, good picking up too far apart places like that, because when you get closer, it also gets more complicated. Right, yeah, it all... It, things bleed into each other too so yeah yeah so we don't have to go through every single kith what i do want to put into the show notes is you know on my own i've i've tried to do research and find websites and information from the different groups represented here Mm -hmm. there are some really good indigenous folklore sites out there that are also connected with indigenous language learning so yeah i had a few little things i don't know if they're appropriate to the culture or whatever but i've used rock giants a lot Mm showing up in my games we didn't have gloms yet so they filled that rock giant niche yes and also the tunwi sunsi Tsunsi. yeah are another very boggin kith where i kind of like their frailty better than the boggin frailty mm. as for boggins easily offended if their help is slighted yep yeah. that just feels very on brand or i'm not going to get universal myth but <laughs> there's a lot of crafter faith that are kind of similar in a lot of stories a lot of places Vindictive crafters. Yeah. Maybe that's just dealing with people who make stuff. Yeah. If you insult what they did, they are going to get mad at you. So Knockers should have that too. Maybe. I mean, knockers will be vindictive either way, I think. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway, overall, I find each of the families of Nunihi interesting, but there are a couple issues where, for some of them, there's a depth of description that sort of implies there are a lot of them. And... Mm-hmm. I'm happy for that to be the case, but it kind of goes against what we've seen previously where it's like the Nunahi are almost gone and that's why they're sending out these frantic war parties all the time because it's this desperate last-ditch attempt to reclaim their their land and their freeholds and everything. But we mm-hmm. have like a lot of information about all of the different places the, that each of the groups lives and all of the different societies they have and everything. And it's, you know, it's a contradiction that I know which side I would like it to come down on, but... Mm-hmm. I don't think the books necessarily hold to it. Yeah. So uh, it it's kind of a prevailing problem in the world of darkness in general. Yeah. Cuz I suppose you have to make it if people do start playing these characters, you need to give them enough mm-hmm. diversity of options to make them not all the same one note. Yeah. You, you could say the same thing applies to the Garu. Perhaps they're supposed yeah. to be dying out, but also or mages, depending how many mages you think there are. <laughs> yeah. Or mages or changelings for that matter. And there was also some first edition issues where you're like, some of these birthrights and whatnot or frailties, yes. you're like, I don't know, that's missing a piece. Yeah. Like the Inuas birthright imbue amulet. Also it's, known as make treasure, basically. <laughs> yeah, but it, it doesn't say what's involved in making one. I guess they just do it. Isn't that great? Yeah, but it's like, <laughs> oh no, it only works once. I'm like, yeah, but if you take like literally what it says here, just be like, oh, okay. I just, uh, okay, I made one. Cost me nothing. I'm going to make another one now. Yeah. And I don't even have to have the powers of it. It's like, okay, that, I don't think that's what they meant because that's very powerful, but. Yeah, there are some balance issues throughout. Yeah. Yeah, they have some new Nunahi backgrounds. Yes. Like household, which, are, which if it, is this just mage cult background? It says it's to replace 
retinue. Okay. Which I guess makes sense. Yep. Big, long spirit companion background. Which is actually, I think, more useful than the chimerical companion one. Mm-hmm. And totem. Mm-hmm. And then vision, which is basically remembrance, which was called at this point grimair. Yep. And then we get uh, their glamour harvesting. It is. I am curious because we have spirit companion. Is the implication because Nunahi are cut off from the dreaming that they can't have chimerical companion? Because I would assume they still could. Yeah. They can still perceive yeah. chimerical stuff. So. Beyond just, I have like it still gives me uncomfortable vibes to make the Nunahi more connected to spirit in general. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, there's a lot of weird questions it raises, just more practical in the game questions. Here they can only do rapture in this Umbra now. Oh, but other people could still meet Changeling can still muse them if they're not in the Umbra. Yeah. So does it say anything I... here about is this where the bit where they get to Oh, difficulty raised by two unless it's Although that's still actually difficulty raised by two. Yeah, well it says cannot easily, but they can still do it, mm-hmm. that's the point. They have more yeah. options for gaining glamour than Kithane do. Yeah, they tend not to have freeholds as much, I guess, is the I suppose well they have they have glades and natural places of power, so Yeah. And they also somewhere in here it has a note about them getting an extra success on primal cantrips, I believe. Mm-hmm. They also start with an additional dot of glamour. So Yep. But here's the note because it says cannot easily gather medicine from human creativity, which is reverie more than ravaging. So can they ravage? I don't know. The weird thing is though it says from unindigenous culture, not their indigenous culture. Well, right. I mean, I think it's ambiguous. So, and I yeah. almost think, you know, I, I, I almost don't want it to be universalized because then it trivializes it to an extent. Yeah. But yeah, these are things to hash out. Yeah. We get extensive information about totems. Yeah. Which. And this time there's no werewolf rules. Right. Well, because we're not in a werewolf book, so. Yeah, but we got it in the Minahune. Yeah. So I have a question here. Hmm. What's the upper world versus the lower world <laughs> versus the middle world? Because it comes up a few times here. So the I think the upper world is the middle umbra because okay. the and the lower world is the underworld, the world of the dead. Mm-hmm. The middle world and the middle is world's the the autumn world. Autumn world? <laughs> Okay, because yes. at first I was like reading some of this and I thought it was like Upper World was upper, High Umbra and then I got very confused and then I'm like, wait, no, maybe that's not... I would surmise that because werewolves don't go to the High Umbra unless they go to the Middle Umbra first and then get there, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. I'd assume it works the same way for... Yeah, because the way they travel over is with their totem material and that's, you know, very Middle Umbra. Right, they don't astrally project. Mm-hmm. So. And the sort of banality readings that we get in relation to the, for the strength of the gauntlet kind of echoes that as well. Mm-hmm. And there's some very extensive rules about stepping sideways. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff to par- yeah. parse through. Here. Which when it, you still have to have wayfair in nature to do it. Although it is easier than opening a trod. Oh, right. This is still when you need a trod to use wayfair three to enter the um, to dreaming. To enter fully. Yes. Overall, I will say I'm, I think I'm generally okay with them being spirit centric. Like Mm -hmm. it is, it is weird mechanically, like you said, but from the limited knowledge I have about the body of folklore that fits with the role they seem to have had. If they're intermediaries with the spirits in the legends of the different groups that they're drawn from. Mm -hmm. Sure. I can, I can roll with that, but I just don't know if that's accurate. 
So tentatively, yeah. I'm okay with all of this detail kind of being uh, slathered uh, on. Given how many groups, how many cultures we're talking about, I am not convinced. Because like the, the World of Darkness concept of spirit is very 20th century Western. Hmm. It's not even like older Western or various other cultures. Like I don't think it, I, I would be shocked if it translates well to like the, especially a, a chimera versus spirit distinction or anything like, but like what, what the Umbra is and what spirits are in the world of darkness that just, even if it was taken from an indigenous North American culture, I'd be kind of surprised if it was across it. But if you look at the basic concepts of having an other world and a general animism for the trees, the birds, oh, the rocks, all of the things yes. in the natural world. I feel more okay with a claim that those are more universal than some of the other possibilities, like some of the stuff we get in Mage, for example. Yeah, I don't know. It's, but but um, having immaterial spirits, for instance, that's from a very weird interpretation of a Western tradition, for instance. Well, I don't know that it's necessarily... I don't know that they necessarily have to be presented in that way here. I mean, spirits spirits mm -hmm. can be given in the mechanics of the game, the materialized charm. So yeah. if you have a body of belief that says spirits have material form in the physical world, yeah. you can represent that very easily in the game rules. Well, I guess this gets into a way broader question we should probably have later, but like, does animism also imply dualism? Ooh, that's like a whole discussion. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I mean... In principle, I'm okay with it until I learn more. And as I'm saying, it's, it's it's twigging something for me, but it's yeah. Well, yeah. I'm happy to be corrected if it's incorrect. But mm -hmm. what I don't want is for all of it to kind of become a generic. All of the all of the groups across North America function, you know, have the same rituals, have the same mm -hmm. belief structure. I think making that vague foundation of animism and otherworld is about as far as you can go before you start running into problems. So if the Nyonehi yep. are presented in a way that just kind of sticks with that, which I think they kind of are here, I think it maybe kind of almost works. Yeah. But this, also the separation from the dreaming is that other? Well, yeah. And that's a whole issue. That's a whole issue. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would love for them to be more concretely related to both. Mm -hmm. Or no, I won't say that. Or if oh. you have like all Fae have this kind of connection, that would also be different. All Fae should have a connection to the dreaming, I think. But if the yeah. culture that they're from, if the background of their kith specific dream says that they're intermediaries with the spirit world, I can accept that they yeah. would also have some kind of spirit connection. Yeah. And maybe just for game balance, they had to say, well, then we have to drop them away mm -hmm. from the dreaming or something. Mm hmm. Or they could have, like, I think they could have had them just not have good access to trods, but... Perhaps, yeah. Anyway, moving on. Anyway, that's a... Moving on. <laughs> yeah, we have the Songs of Power, which are Nunahi cantrips. We just get some information about Nunahi magic, the importance of the medicine bag. Mm -hmm. That's one of those... See, that's an example of, I'm not sure how universalizable that is. Mm -hmm. If, you know, if every group had medicine bags, that seems like a more particular localized thing, but... Yeah. We get a bunch of totems, some of which are quite powerful. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at ice, for example, which costs one background point, and it gives you survival two for the Arctic, or presumably cold places, and an additional point of stamina. Also, it's really easy to find up there to travel through. Right. 
Well, and you're required to live in places where ice is prevalent and to care for people yeah. and creatures who make those lands their home. Ooh, I mean, that does create a problem with climate change, but... Well, yes. But for one background point, that's two dots yeah. of an ability and a tribute are nothing to sneeze at. Mm-hmm. Granite gives you two points of strength and intimidate two for three background points. And all you have to do is never back down from a test of strength or endurance, which you will probably win. Mm-hmm. So, quite potent. And then that's it for chapter three. Okay, so now we have chapter four, The Ways of Glamour. And more art that I love. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that one. With the slew in a tire. Look at that a little hummingbird. Yeah, a little spot of Pleasantville color in a gray banal, gray banal world. So we get rules for bunks. Without um, cards. Yeah, Yay. I think it's better than the card system, but I'm still like, huh? On some <laughs> of these rules. First, first draft, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Or maybe a second draft, really? It seems like an expansion of the alternate rules that we already got in the player's kit. Mm-hmm. So, and the first edition yeah. core book to an extent. But one thing that stood out to me here is a change that's certainly from this book to C20, and I'd have to check and see how much second edition goes into this. It seems more like when they give kind of the different levels of intensity for bunks here, they're basing it primarily on time that it takes. Whereas in C20, you also have the element mm-hmm. of like, risk involved or public display you know this it seems to be almost purely time related but there is a time related component to the c21 too you're not going to find well it's a trade-off of various things i seem to recall some like one of the level five wayfair bunks suggestions is something like jump off a building so i mean (laughs) yes no but i mean is there's a trade-off yeah so like at the lower levels is a trade-off between difficulty and risk and resource usage and time yeah you could put it that way it's complex flow chart well regardless i do like how there's sort of general guidelines here and then several Mm -hmm. examples for each level i guess three for each and there's also rolling to create a bunk where your character's a bit interesting this is again feeling more like getting a little bit into mage foci territory (laughs) i was just reading through it's like okay it's got the caster's banality plus four unless there's a mortal witness then it's plus five of the highest banality and i'm like wow that's kind of brutal but you also get a free success like an automatic success when targeting any changeling who's not resisting with banality well that's handy yep i like the c21 but for this part yeah Um, i have my issues with the c20 bunk system but we can leave those for when we discuss c20 yes and then we get more information about the chrysalis than I think we ever needed. <laughs> well, I won't say no, that we ever needed, I, but we get a lot that we probably don't need. I think it might also be, I'm not sure if it's the same as, as later info we get on the chrysalis, but it's, yeah. it's the so, maximalist interpretation of chrysalis. Certainly. Yeah. We have this extended bit about lethargia as something which changelings can enter before the chrysalis where they almost sort of resist awakening. Yeah. And I kind of wonder why that wasn't in the Autumn People. Mm-hmm. And then there's also Exigency, which just makes me think of um, Exalted, because they have a new Exalted type called Exigence, who yeah. actually become Exalted through a similar method of Exigency. So it's all... You have very odd-looking naked trolls. Yeah, with faces that make me uncomfortable, whatever they're about to just do. Just a lot that makes... Also, the top troll, the way the arms kind of the shoulder it's mm, not right not not uh not good yoga practice yeah 
We do get a sidebar for one of my favorite groups in Changeling, which is the Order of Eliathea, uh, which was the Greek goddess of childbirth, I believe. And it's a group that's dedicated to rescuing and helping Changelings through their chrysalis. So many potential story options just from having characters mm-hmm. who are part of this order. The one thing that I do not like is when they talk about threats to awakening changelings, Mm -hmm. they include the Nunahi in a preemptive strike to kill more quote foreigners, which is like, great, Mm -hmm. great guys. You just completely undercut the whole chapter you just had. Yeah. Especially with the quote, that was just too much. Yeah. But then also humans out of curiosity. And I'm like, what would a human, what would a curious human do to stop a chrysalis? That seems like a much worse time for the human than the changeling. I guess, yeah, they're calling them predators as opposed to just a complication. Right. And I mean, they're in the extended chrysalis essay, we have things about how the awakening changeling can warp their physical surroundings as well as the dreaming. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> like they should also have not just mage looking for a quick fix of something. Should also be mages going, is this a new mage or just what the heck's going on? Right. You know, a quick fix of quote something. It is not understood what presumably glamour, but, you know. Yeah. As has been pointed out in mage circles many times, it's not like quintessence is that hard to get. So seeking out a changeling yeah. going through a dream dance. Well, first edition mage, if that's, although I think second edition was out by this point. It, wasn't it, it? very much was. Yeah. Yeah. Because in first edition mage, from my understanding, there was, even if mechanically it didn't make sense, there was more of a push for it. But And then we have bits about fostering and saning. And mm-hmm. then a woefully short amount of information about true names. Oh, did you see the nasty thing where if you don't get fostered, like, sorry, if you don't do your saning, you, which is like only would apply to PCs, really, you stop collecting XP. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, because, yeah. that All right. So here's a general question. How often has the concept of the true name ever come up in your games? Um, It came up two sessions ago. Does someone have naming or... Yeah, one of the NPCs had naming. All right, well, that makes sense. But aside from if someone actually has naming, has it ever mm-hmm. come up? Because... No, but just naming comes up a lot in my case. All right, well, that's that's a choice. But what I feel is kind of like when we saw the Knocker, Thedal, whatever earlier, Changelings seem to have three different names. They have the human mortal name that they grew mm-hmm. up under. They have their true name, which given the amount of power it's alluded to contain, doesn't seem like something they'd want to share with anybody. And then the Correct. sort of fairy use name like Thedal yeah. or whatever. So mm-hmm. there's a lot to dig into there. And yet I feel woefully undersold on the concept of the true name here. Mm. Like we just got a couple paragraphs that says they exist, they're important. And then later under naming, it's you can mess with it, but... Is it something that changelings have to use in rituals or something? I don't know. Yeah, I I generally have true names or you never tell anybody your true name barring some really big thing to give the benefit of it. And otherwise it doesn't really come up much. There's no naming involved. Right. And whoever saying you knows it. Yep. That's why you got to be careful who's seeing you. It reminds me of the, the Wizard of Earthsea books. And I wonder if that's kind of what they were inspired by to some extent. I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely more interesting ways to do true names, things called true names and other things like Mage the Awakening has, it's essentially just your mortal name. That's why you don't let anybody know you're an immortal name. Mm. But uh, that's a different society than what Changeling does. Yeah. Anyway, chapter five. I, li- I like the intersection of Pangea and yes. Narnia. Classic art. This was the splash image that they used for the ad for second edition core book. 
I do like mm-hmm. that there's the tag for the unsealy glamour boys on the corner here, uh, who turn up in the shadow court briefly. And just the puka with the, the necktie and the lunchbox with the dragon eyeing him. Mm-hmm. Just great. Just everything about that picture I love. Anyway, here's where we get new arts. Yep. So we have Pyretics, which it's always been a favorite of mine. Same. I feel like the C20 Pyretics is like in some quote unquote better, like from some balance sense, but I like this one better. <sighs> I think people just like it because it's fire all the way through with resurrection at yeah. the end. Eh. Uh, which one? The, the C20 one? The C20 one. I liked having Will of the Wisps. It Wisp. is a bit, yeah, they put Will of the Wisps and C20 into Soothsay. Soothsay. Yeah. yeah. I like it here. Yeah. In the game I'm running, one of my players would have, I think he I think he actually wanted this version of Pyretics, even though he didn't know it existed. Well, so in, in the game that I was playing in a few years ago in New York, I, I was playing a Slua who had Pyretics, who was a pyromaniac. It was wonderful. And C20 was released in the middle of us playing that campaign. And we kind of debated whether or not to update. It was actually, it was a Slua with Pyretics and Soothsay. Go figure. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of looked at the the rejiggering of the arts and it was like, no, this is just not, it's not yeah. what I want from those arts. So I do miss this version. Mm-hmm. I guess the new one is okay, but. Yeah, I like just, having just less setting things on fire. Yeah, and and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I like having illumination and finding things. Mm-hmm. But... I think there's still illumination in the C20, but yes. And then there's naming. Naming is very similar, I'd say, to C20. It's definitely been updated still, but they mention in C20 that because here naming is restricted to the crystal circle and the court seers and they sort of for practical reasons i suppose because i imagine those changelings are in high demand if they have to do all the sanings mm-hmm. they've expanded naming to be available to lots of other changelings yep but i don't know i also naming is still extraordinarily powerful and having characters say i'm just taking naming because i want to take it i'm of the opinion that characters should still have a good reason to have naming I found, I'm not sure it's actually extraordinarily powerful compared to the other arts now in C20, but here it definitely is. Yeah, that's true. I mean, level five is still, still quite powerful. <laughs> yes. Saning, I can't remember, I think that might be a lower level in C20. I think so, yeah, because it's level but four here. Yeah. I find this a little bit goofy, the system they have for it. Did you ever play that game Jitters where you had to like roll dice with letters on them and make words no, in a certain set amount of time? Yeah. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah, so you get like you have to like roll a chart to see how many letters are in your name. Then yeah, and the saner may not be able to determine all of them, mm-hmm. which is frustrating. <laughs> I do like the runic circle one. I think that's really powerful and a nice. Uh, it evokes a nice. Image. Oh yeah, it doesn't even say you can necessarily re-roll it. What's that? It doesn't even really say that you can re-roll saning, does it? <laughs> well, I guess you just use it more than once. Yeah, but would it give you new letters? Additional, perhaps. Yeah. And then there's Spirit Link, which has a lot of text devoted to it, probably more than any other art, and I'm still confused about how it all works. Yeah, this is where you definitely need to figure out the upper, lower, and middle worlds. Yeah. Well, so in order, because Spirit Link is not in C20, so just to kind of go through it, Mm -hmm. level one lets you see the worlds of the spirits. It's actually not that good, I feel. I mean... Mm -hmm. You can look anywhere in the in the higher low worlds, upper or lower worlds. I guess it's I guess it's useful in the sense that it kind of combines adjusted perception with scrying, but you need a mm-hmm. lot of successes to really get a clear picture. Mm-hmm. 
And then level two lets you summon an ancestral spirit. Level three lets you have a precognitive vision. Level four lets you placate the restless spirits of persons or animals. Mm-hmm. And level five lets you summon an army of the deceased. Level five, pretty powerful. The others, I feel like the use cases are particular for the most mm-hmm. part. Well, if you're playing Nunahi care, presumably you're dealing a lot with the spirit world as it is. Yeah. It does raise kind of this issue, which I think still exists in C20, where you can play a Nunahi Chronicle with Nunahi characters doing Nunahi mm-hmm. things, and it makes it very hard to integrate them into a mixed splat chronicle. Yeah, unless it, it's almost easier to mix them with werewolves. Yeah, ages. which is probably why they first appeared in Rage Across Appalachia. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we got some bunks, uh, as well mm-hmm. as some Nunahi-specific bunks. And that's it for Chapter 5. And then we have role-playing. I quite like this chapter, short as it is. It's a series of little essays or like writings about Changeling. Um, Three in total. Yeah. The first one was kind of interesting. The Horror of Loss by Jennifer Hartshorn. She described Bedlam as my ADHD symptoms and it was kind of odd. Or it's like one of them, like hyperfocus or various things like that. But it's framed as time and energy dedicated to an intense creative experience. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part the particular sort of expression that she was going for. Yeah. But I think more importantly, it kind of addresses head on, again, that criticism of, oh, Changeling isn't dark enough, Changeling isn't hard, it's too bright, it's too happy, and says, yeah. uh, well, no, here's some, here's some ways in which that's not true. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And then we have the essay entitled, oh boy, a cat's eye shooter which kind of goes into just the joy of role-playing and the joy of nostalgia and being a kid and being excited about things, which is like, yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. I think this essay is like good reading for anybody who wants to play a childling who's not actually a minor. Yep. That's where I see it being the most useful. And then why we need changelings. I feel like this was very good, but I didn't understand it. <laughs> I all right, here's my here's my take on it because it goes through some of the historical things surrounding changeling lore and the real world expressions of that. You know, you have things like Bridget Cleary who was burned and tortured by her husband and townsfolk because they thought she was a changeling and this was like 1890. It wasn't the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. So, throughout history, you know, you have these cases where children didn't grow up the way their parents thought they should or people suffered some kind of incident mentally or whatever and changed fundamentally. And so people said, oh, they must have been abducted by the fairies. And it's just, it's really sad when you look into the history of it to see all of these people misunderstood being framed in this way that made them an other and made them, you know, made others perceive them as dangerous in some cases and and respond accordingly. So I think it is important to kind of look at the social role people who don't fit in play. And that's, that's what Changeling tries to approach in a certain sense. It kind of highlights, and I would say honors and respects people who don't fit into the mold, people who are quirky and can't help it, people who are themselves, the hell what anybody else says, and how having those presences within a culture or a group of people reminds them of the dynamics of humanity, reminds them that all of this is to some extent constructed. All of this is stuff we're figuring out as a species, as a group. And that's, that's beautiful. 
or it can be beautiful and it should be beautiful. Mm. It's the exact mm -hmm. kind of thing that technocracy is struggling to destroy. So, mm -hmm. you know, but yeah, that all of that, I mean, it's like three pages of all of the kind of historical horrors and then two paragraphs at the end about why they're important. So the balance is a little strange. But still, I, I wish, honestly, that the C20 Player's Guide had essays like this, because this used to be a mm -hmm. hallmark of player's guides for each line. And I was sad that those were kind of missing. I mean, even the 1E core book had stuff like this. So, mm -hmm. But yeah, a short chapter overall. Then we're left with the appendix, the Autumn People Errata. Which is exactly how I love to end a Changeling book. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, not a fan of this webcraft. Yeah. <laughs> Because this is what directly ties Autumn People to the Weaver, as in the Werewolf mm -hmm. Triad member. Yeah. At level 5, you can uh, summon a Paradox Spirit or a Nexus Crawler. Great. I mean, useful for dealing with mages, but, you know. Yeah. The other thing, too, is, like, how often would Autumn People really... Or I shouldn't say Autumn People, I should say Dantain. How often would Dantain really encounter and know what they're dealing with in terms of werewolves and mages? I mean, yeah. they're attuned to changelings. So would they even recognize a mage when they came across one? You might think the mage is a weird changeling. Let alone know how to summon a paradox spirit to do well, with Well, I could see a lot of Dantain thinking they're still dealing with changelings, but... I suppose. I don't think they really had mechanics for sensing them, though, in that same way. Yeah. I'd have to look back at the Autumn people, and that's not something I've got the capacity for this week. Well, kenning is a kenning is this question of what it actually covers. Yeah, the true. Too. True. But... I don't know, somebody turns into a giant wolf thing or does weird magic, that kind of might suggest. Right, but so if that happens and the Dantain is still, is not affected by delirium, I would assume they still wouldn't immediately think, I'm going to summon a Nexus Crawler, that'll deal with this. Yep. Well, I don't think summoning Nexus Crawler is ever the answer to the, any question. But... Right. It's just an odd, I mean, you go from level three put someone in a purgatory of boredom to level five, summon a Nexus crawler. And it talks about Weaver yeah. and the banality and stuff. I'm like, and then I did like their extended descriptions, which I think made their way into the second edition core book of what humans are like at each banality level yeah. from five to 10. And that is actually really useful. This one's I've noticed is more extreme than in the C20 descriptions like this. Yes. Uh, yeah. Banality five, you're like borderline insane. Okay. It's not. <laughs> but for human children, it's borderline maturity. Yep. It's a lot more centered on imagination and possibility, mm -hmm. I think, which is an interesting thing. Yeah. Well, there's banality changes throughout the editions, what it actually means. Yeah. Well, not even just throughout the editions, throughout the pages. Yeah. <laughs> and then we also have this power of berating oration, which is horrifyingly powerful. <laughs> so. Yeah, we had the the sidebar in the autumn people about, you know, a librarian berating a childling could inflict five temporary banality at the drop of a hat, and here it's could probably do four or five chimerical damage at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is where the changelings turn to die from banality. Right, bit comes from this power specifically. I'm okay with this having been left out of the autumn people. I don't know that it needs mm. to be in the player's guide. Yep. But. And then we get an ad for Mind's Eye Theater Vampire and an ad for Hunter the Reckoning. And yep. that's the book. This also shows that our printing is later. I have to assume that they weren't advertising Hunter the Reckoning in 1996. Probably not. That's That would be some deep advance uh, advertisement. I do like on the back cover 
there's the Changeling Player's Guide includes expanded rules for casting cantrips without cards. How exciting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how, how would you sum up overall? Like, I think it's definitely useful for the time it came out. Yeah, not so much anymore. Yeah, I like the legacies. That's about the big thing I like still. I like the essays yeah. and stuff, but you don't need to pull out your essays for in-game, you know? Yeah, I would say the legacies, the essays, the extended Kith backgrounds, if one doesn't have the Kith books, and the Nunahi background info, if one is willing to like take a heaping teaspoon of salt and do additional research on their own to actually flesh it out more. I mean, at that point, would you need that over this what's in C20? You're going to do that research anyway? Well, specifically specifically talking about the geography and the different groups, yeah. the, you know, okay. the human groups, not the Nunahi kiths themselves. Yeah. So, Because yeah. I don't think, I mean, we'll get to the C20 player's guide at some point eventually, but I do think that while I understand and appreciate the the perspective they took where they kind of said, we are not experts, you know, we're not from the cultures that we're talking about here, so we're just kind of not doing anything about the history of colonialism or, you know, the different sort of cultural traditions or anything. And when you look at sort of the pages of geography, when they talk about like Bella Tierra or the Fertile Crescent or, you know, all of the sort of different places in the world, they're almost entirely these sort of mythologies around individual changeling figures in game. And you get very little, if anything, about the actual history of those places. Now, yeah, the the internet is a wonderful resource that we have now and people can do their own mm-hmm. research, but I would still like to see something solid in these books because if nothing well, else, it tells you what the writers find important from those yeah. those real-world facts. Yeah, there's a balance point. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Anyway, really like those legacies, though. <laughs> I'm sad they weren't in C20. Yeah. They're easy enough to bring in. So there are bits that are useful. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone has updated Spirit Link for C20, but it's mm-hmm. in here if someone wants it. So yeah, that brings us to the end of this episode on the Player's Guide. You can find us, you can find Changeling the Podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. We're also Changeling the Podcast on Facebook. That's a page there. We're also on Twitter at ChangelingCast. And you can find our Discord. The easiest way to get there is to go to changelingthepodcast.com. Also, hopefully by the time this comes out, there'll be a link on our website to the Patreon. Yay. Yay. So yeah, until next time, don't let any autumn people do any berating at you. Sounds unpleasant. Or anyone, really. Help us keep the frenzied machine that is changeling the podcast going by signing up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast. You'll get some sweet bennies, including a shout-out at the end of each episode. This episode goes out to Sandjigger, Seja, and Terry Robinson, stalwart warriors in the ongoing fight against banality. Cheers, and thanks for your support. Here come the outtakes. Well, I went through I went through an eight-point program in order yeah. to learn how to play a puka, so that, that mm. helped. I mean, it was a, yeah. a storyteller. One of the earliest games I played in, actually, because I wanted to play a puka, and... I, I said basically that like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. And the storyteller said, here's an eight point like system for learning how to do it, like practicing how to do it. And I wish I still had it because it was really, it was really helpful. I mean, I'm trying to remember like, ugh, I, 
can't remember exactly what all the points were, but um, anyway, all of that is untrue. I just made that up on the spot. So, you know, mm. um, that's, that's how to roll. <laughs>